I personally believe that the government's going to have to reduce interest rates over time, not necessarily in the short term, but in the longer term, to keep everything afloat, especially because they're paying interest on all the debt that they're issuing. And as rates get lower and lower, our cash flows are going to get less and less interesting. And frankly, the, the other thing that's going to pile onto that, as I was talking about before, is what happens when you don't know if GDP is going to be positive or negative in a year, and there was negative, and now you can't really increase your rents as, as much as or even if, if at all. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Jeremy Roll from the Roll Investment Group and For Investors by Investors. Today, we're going to learn about Jeremy's experience being a passive real estate and other asset investor for well over the last decade, since just before the Great Recession. He's going to tell you all about his story, how he got started in passive cash flow investing, how he retired from the corporate world just before the Great Recession, how they survived and thrived through the Great Recession, where he is today, so much more. There's a big question, a lot of questions in here that come up for folks who are looking at retiring early through cash flow investing, but don't know when it's time to pull the trigger. And today we learn about Jeremy's decisions, thought-making processes that helped him get to that point where he was able to retire early. And then where he is today, some good number of years later, still successful as a passive cash flow investor, purely passive cash flow investor. So it's fascinating. This guy is full of knowledge. You're going to learn so much. And that's a great conversation with him. He's a very great guy. And um, yeah, this is a, a fantastic interview. I think you're really going to enjoy. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy professionals passively invest in commercial real estate. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing in one of our future real estate deals, go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, and take the steps there. Once again, investwithtaylor.com. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please do take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And that helps us grow. And I'm always honest with you guys. And that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content, you're learning from these interviews, and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do take a moment, look us up, hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. There's so much knowledge in here from Jeremy. Really, I feel like we... we Got a little bit deeper than scratching the surface, but he has—he just has so much. So it's—it's it's a great pleasure to speak with him again. He was on the show uh, before, just at the at the beginning of the Passive Wealth Strategy Show a few years ago now, and uh, it was great to catch back up with him and see how uh, the pandemic has affected his strategy, if at all. You know, we're going to get to that and uh, how how things have changed for him over the last few years. So so much in here, you guys. Want to thank you for tuning in. Without any further ado, here we go. Jeremy, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. Really appreciate it. And I just hope that uh, this episode is helpful for your listeners. Oh, I'm sure it will be. It's great to have you back on the show to get to talk with you once again. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and what you do, can you give us a quick intro and your background and a few things that you've accomplished? Yes. And I will kind of try to keep it short, not to bore everybody. <laughs> but uh, My name is Jeremy Roll. I'm originally from Montreal, Canada. Grew up there, lived about half my life there and half my life in uh, the U.S., I uh, came down to the U.S. in 98 
uh, did an MBA at the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School, uh, graduated in 2000, was in the corporate world until 2007, just over 10 years experience, uh, typical corporate track, uh, where my last two jobs, as an example, I worked at, uh, last job was Toyota headquarters in Los Angeles, previous one was Disney headquarters in Los Angeles, so a really, really corporate track, and um, I started investing in passive cash flow opportunity syndications uh, in real estate in 2002 after the dot-com crash, for those of you who remember all the way back then, uh, just for more predictability from my retirement account and just to get away from the volatility and a lack of predictability of the stock market for the long term. I rotated all my capital or, or investments from uh, stocks and bonds at the cash flow between 02 and 07. Had a last drama moment in the corporate world in 07 with my manager at Toyota at the time and decided to take a risk and leave because I had enough cash flow built up to live off of. And to be honest, that wasn't like a strategy I had or a plan that I had. I actually wanted to have the paycheck and the cash flow just for more predictable retirement investing. So I've been a full-time passive cash flow investor since mid-07, uh, but I have been investing in syndication since early 2002. And um, so I've been in, uh, you know, an investor in syndications for almost 20 years now. I uh, invest in real estate and on real estate opportunities focused mostly on more predictable, lower risk, passive cash flow. Uh, I'm highly diversified. I'm in over 60 LLCs right now. I've probably been in over 150 to 200 plus opportunities in 19 years. And let's see, just very quickly, I also have my own investor group that I send, you know, a very small subset I want to investing into that group and people can choose to invest directly with the sponsor under the exact same terms as me. I also am a co-founder of something called Four Investors by Investors, which is public, a nonprofit uh, public investor meetings, mostly in Southern California, where we kind of have the very strong, strict, no sales pitch philosophy. And these are in-person meetings except for during COVID. Um, and we have, uh, we, we become the largest series of public real estate meetings in California. Actually, we have over 30,000 members. And we've had, a at one time, we had over 13 active chapters a month. Now we're probably down to, I don't even know the exact number, five to eight and what else? I'm also an advisor for Realty Mogul, which I think is one of the largest crowdfunding real estate sites in the U.S. I've been an advisor with them since before they launched in 2012. And uh, just constantly networking, looking for opportunities, just a full-time passive cash flow investor, essentially. Sorry that was so long. No, that's great. One of the things that I suppose we've spoken a few times uh, previously, one of the things I just realized now is the time of your retirement, you retired just before the Great Recession, and uh, from the sound of it, didn't go back to the corporate world despite all the, you know, the, the the hullabaloo, I suppose, going on in the real estate market. That's that's interesting. You made it through. Yeah. So actually, what's interesting is that when I left the corporate world, it was uh, June of 2007. Uh, I left, and then my wife was literally leaving her job because we were pregnant at the time. So we were like first kid coming up in the in the fall, uh, which was October. My wife left her job full time. I left my job full time. But we had like, we were at over 2x cost of living and cash flow, which was really important to me. And I gave myself two years of runway to see how it went. I actually anticipated a, a downturn uh, in that I stopped investing for the most part as of 2005 in terms of just cyclical timing. So it was a three year slog while, while kind of being on the sidelines, except for unique opportunities. Uh, I had real estate and non-real estate, so I continue to make investments, some of which were non-real estate during that time. I'm kind of going through a very similar phenomenon right now, you know, in the last uh, two to three years, even just pre-pandemic, um, really been on the sidelines since 2017, except for unique opportunities and just waiting to see what happens here once this, once we get an adjustment, if we get an adjustment at some point. And so it was an interesting time, but I wasn't worried because I had so many sources of cash flow that, and I could have taken a 50% hit on the cash flow and still been okay. So th that coverage ratio was really, really key at the time. But I also anticipated that was going to happen. So, so that's very interesting. You know that that kind of maybe 
echoes today, like you said, with uh, you've been on the sidelines sort of since the, since 2017, you've been investing in unique opportunities. And here we are, we're talking toward the end uh, of, of 2021 and hopefully toward the end of the pandemic. We see a lot of things like the eviction moratoriums ending, but there's so much uncertainty on the horizon as there kind of always is some level of uncertainty. But I'd like to learn, I guess, what have you been looking for lately? And you know, if you're looking into your crystal ball, what do you think is coming in the future? Are you seeing another, you know, call in the next great recession or are the, you know, is the news not quite that dire? Yeah, great question. So it's very complicated right now because the government between the pandemic, the crazy amount of stimulus we had that was pandemic related, um, you know, the government printed a lot of money that essentially put money in people's pockets to spend that was artificial. That appears to have now come to an end, at least if you look at the infrastructure bill, they're currently trying to negotiate, right, um, to pass. The interesting thing about that is that unlike the pandemic spending that was um, very immediate and meant to have people have money immediately, infrastructure bills like a 10-year type of outlook, right? So that money will not come into play and be effective and actually have an effect on the economy for the first, you know, six to 12 months. And then after that, it's really a longer term effect on the economy. So it's a very different type of stimulus. So I believe that the Short-term stimulus is probably mostly behind us. You can't rule out another stimulus situation just because of the approach the government's taken. But assuming that doesn't happen, what I currently am waiting on right now is what happens now that the stimulus is waning, right, in the fall of 2021 where we're talking, what is spending going to look like uh, going forward in the next 12 months? What are the eviction moratoriums being listed in most areas? I'm in LA and they're still actually in effect, but in most areas they're lifted. What is that going to look like in the next six, 12 months with evictions, knowing there's going to be a backlog of evictions in the courts uh, for, you know, a lot of, it's going to take a time for us to see what happens. Most importantly, what is the GDP and spending going to look like? Are we actually going to have an adjustment in the stock market, a possible adjustment in the stock, in the economy that was basically, everything's been postponed, right? So all this money printing postponed what should have been some type of adjustment. So in my opinion, we haven't had an end of cycle yet. The government postponed it. Once we have an end of cycle, how bad is that going to look? Is it going to be minor or major? And then what impact will that have on liquidity, on investors coming to the table to invest, on asset prices? So all these uncertainties for someone like me, who's very low risk, is equals weight, right? And so except for unique situations or shorter term investments, I'm waiting. Um, so that's my, that's my very long answer as to what I'm doing today. Now, I had a very specific plan in 2021, um, um, like what I was targeting and what made sense to right now. Uh, and then I'm going to reevaluate that beginning in 2022 for next year. So if you want, I can get into that and what I did this year. But, um, you know, that's going to change or be reevaluated at the end of this year. So. Awesome. Yeah, I'd love to to get into it. And I think one of the things that we were talking about again before we started recording was when newer investors hear a veteran say that they're on the sidelines, they're waiting, I think newer investors take that as an indication that they should stay out of the market entirely and not even look at opportunities. Whereas from my observation, my personal experience and knowing so many veterans, when veterans say, I'm sitting out of the market, that actually means they're still looking at stuff. They're still making offers if they're an active investor, but they're maybe being a lot more conservative than they used to in the past, or they're just not moving forward with closing things, but they're still involved. They still know what's going on in the market. And I think that's very, very different and an important kind of clarification to make for, for folks out there. 
Yeah, I, I think you're 100% right. So when I say I'm on the sidelines, what I mean is that my volume is much lower, but I'm looking for unique opportunities. Like I, I like using extreme examples to make a point. If somebody were to sell me a property on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills, that's 100% occupied for a dollar, I'm buying it today. I don't care what I think the outlook is, right? So, <laughs> you know, I, but it's an important point though, nonetheless, because I, I have been, in, I, I made it, in fact, I was telling you before we started recording this, I would tell you, I'm not looking at any regular multifamily deals right now or any asset class, just any regular, forget multifamily, I shouldn't even said that. Any market rate deals across anything in real estate right now is a challenge for me because I'm waiting to see if there's going to be price adjustments. That being said, I have probably made five to eight multifamily investments in the last 12 months alone, but they've all been unique. They've all been either low-income housing tax credit or tax abatement deals that are designed to either have less of an adjustment or to shield against potential adjustment in rents or that type of thing. And they have some built-in equity at closing as opposed to like a value-add plan necessarily that has some uh, execution risk. So, and I mean, I've been doing a ton of hard money. So on the single family side, I've done, I actually have done two and a half times more hard money than I did last year, just because the supply and demand imbalance got so out of whack where there was such a small supply versus demand and prices went up that as a real estate investor, that makes for a fantastic risk reward scenario this year. The best one I could think of since the last downturn, right? So I literally went two and a half X more hard money this year than last year, went very overweight on that. But now I'm going to reevaluate at the end of the year. I'm about to get some payouts. I'm going to take that money off the table, wait a couple months, take a look at supply demand and reevaluate what should I do for next year, right? So that's another really good example of something I went really hard on in real estate that made sense at that time, but it was shorter term. And so the bigger point that you're making is that there's always opportunities out there. You always need to continue to look. There's always unique situations that can still make sense despite market rate stuff being questionable. And that's where I land right now is market rate stuff is questionable. I'm also doing some non-real estate stuff that uh, you know I think is not subject to asset price changes where I think that the cash flow is predictable regardless of whether there's a recession or at least has a high probability of continuing. And so that stuff can make a lot of sense right now too. So there's a lot of different options out there, but you have to be careful to your point. And that, what that means is that I am doing lower volume than normal. So what are those other things that you're doing, non-real estate stuff? What yeah. does that include? Sure. So um, just some examples of stuff I've done recently. I just invested in an ATM fund. I've been investing in ATM machines since 2008. So I have a long history of understanding the market. I actually paused my uh, ATM investing when the retail closures happened and waited until there was a vaccine available to start to be distributed. Because in my mind, once the vaccine was actually starting to become widely distributed and used, retailers were going to eventually reopen and that risk subsided because you're dependent on transaction volume at retail stores for that to occur, right? So for me as an ATM investor, I'm not worried about the next 12 months or like major retail closures. I personally think most of those are behind us. And all I have to worry about is, will there be enough sustained transaction volume if there's an economic downturn to maintain um, the type of returns that I'm expecting in that asset class, right? What's interesting about that particular asset class is the machines themselves depreciate to almost zero, just electronics in a case. So I'm not at all worried about price adjustments, right? All I have to worry about is, is the cash flow going to be there? And is the execution going to be good? So totally different set of criteria to consider at this timing versus when you're embedding on a hard asset, for example, right? So that's one investment I've made pretty heavily since the uh, retail has reopened. Another uh, one that I made is debt related uh, to do with uh, receivables associated with attorneys, right? And that's for stuff that I think that the public is going to continue or that those clients are going to continue to pay on despite a downturn, just because of the cost benefit of what the particular niche is. What else? I've invested in a couple of startups. Those are, I'm not looking for any of those. That's, that's, that always happens when I have to make a bet on somebody. And I, I think the business model is interestingly enough. 
What something people don't know is some of the most opportunistic time to start a company is during a downturn because you have your most selection of employee potential people to hire and highest availability of talent at the lowest price. And you also get to start your business when you're not spending as much marketing dollars testing in a cheaper way. There's less people money being spent on marketing at that time. And then you can actually ride the wave because a startup takes years to really build. And then you can ride the wave of that actual uh, economic cycle from the start. So I, I'm not looking for any. I don't proactively consider those where I don't know the founders typically, but those have come up in a couple of senses. And so I'm actually about to invest in one of them right now as an example. And that's clearly not for cash flow. And that's 100% speculation, like 1% of what I do. And there's been some other stuff too. Uh, but I'm always looking at so many different things because of the size of my network that it's uh, there's just kind of stuff coming to me all all over the place. Hey, it sounds like a good problem to have. Now, one of the things that you know we haven't touched on so far, but I think you've actually briefly mentioned it is just all the money printing out there. I mean, the federal government has an enormous amount of debt, and at least when we're talking right now, this future spending bill hasn't been decided on, but it's going to be enormous and it's going to be paid for on the credit card, just like everything the federal government's done for the last 20 years. Yes. There might be some tax hikes. The 1031 might be limited or go away. I doubt the extent that a lot, that a lot of that is going to happen. But you know, there are, are some folks in this space that talk about the potential for a dollar crisis. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to address on the dollar crisis that much because I am not a big believer in like, yeah, the dollar can continue to weaken, but I don't think there's going to be a quote unquote crisis. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, you know, we may have an economic downturn, but there's never really a true crisis in the dollar. When it happens, it can weaken and can strengthen different parts depending on when people get scared or not. But my bigger concern about the economy is longer term because of the money printing, not in the shorter term. And what I mean by that is that if you take a look at Japan since the 90s, they've struggled with their economy. And they basically ended up in a huge debt to GDP challenge that they've not been able to get out of. And all they've done is continue to print money and buy assets as a result. So, for example, the Japanese government owns over 40% of all stocks in Japan. Wow. Okay? Yes. So if you think about our trajectory, the Fed has purchased corporate bonds. They purchased mortgage bonds. But they haven't started purchasing. As some people say they've started purchasing stocks, but there's not public disclosure to that, I think. But we're we're like heading down what Japan has gone down out of desperation for the politicians to keep things together and afloat. And so if you look at the debt and what it's already done to our economy and our growth over time, you know, back in the 2000s, we had probably like an average annualized GDP growth potential of about 4%, right? And, and then once we had our downturn, I printed a lot of money in the last downturn, relatively speaking, in 2008-9. Our, because of the additional debt and the overhang and the, and the cost of the debt, during the entire decade of the 2010s, it, re, it re, uh, re, resulted in our, in my opinion, in a maximum uh, GDP annualized growth rate of about 3%. And that's why when you saw President Trump saying like, I'm going to get the 4%, he kind of like threw stimulus money at the economy in 2018 when most people don't choose to do that. He never got over that 4% mark or even that 3% mark because it, the debt overhang was there and it was just math, okay, just what the possibilities were. Now, with all this enormous money printing, what I'm expecting once this all this normalizes and we start a new cycle is I'm expecting one to two percent maximum GDP growth potential for each year in, in the next cycle. Okay. And so I think on an average year, we're gonna have one to two percent GDP growth. I think it's gonna be very difficult to actually get above two percent GDP growth, even with the stimulus they're employing, because of all the debt overhang. 
And I think it's also going to be, I know this is kind of a bold statement, but I am concerned that it might be our last normal cycle. What I mean by that is that Japan, if you look at what goes on there, they're constantly fighting between negative and positive 1% GDP. And that's because they have so much debt that you don't know in one quarter if you're going to be negative or positive because a debt overhang is causing the economy to really languish. They have so much, so much payments and that debt and the government spending can't go towards more productive things. So I feel like if we do go through this 1% GDP potential, and then we have a downturn and the government continues to print money and there's more debt overhang, that's how you end up in this negative to positive 1% GDP growth. And that's how you end up in a position where you wake up as an investor at the beginning of the year, you don't know if you're going to be negative or positive GDP growth in that year, you have less predictability, and that becomes an entirely challenging and different investing environment. So um, you know how you and I wake up in a given year in this past cycle between 2010 and now that you say to yourself, the U.S. is going to have positive GDP growth. We're in a growth cycle. It's probably going to be plus two, plus three, plus four, whatever you think it might be. But, but positive. You kind of, yeah, you can count on that as a very high probability. Well, if you take that entire thesis away, it is a completely different investing cycle and, and thesis. And for someone like me who looks for predictable cash flow to live off of, that is a huge problem. Because if we have negative 1% GDP growth in a given year, how do I know I'm going to get positive growth in my cash flow and actually positive cash flow from the buildings I'm in? It's very challenging to know that rent growth will necessarily increase. That may not be possible when GDP is negative. So I'm very concerned this is our last uh, very predictable cycle where I can wake up in any given year and we're going to have positive GDP growth. And that, I think, is going to change how I'm going to have to invest in the future. And what I think I'm going to have to do is go from being a cash flow investor, which is really what I love and that's what I focus on, to being more of an appreciation investor where so much money, the government's so desperate to prop stuff up that it may not experience a GDP growth, but it may be able to purchase assets like the Japanese government has done and continue to prop the assets up. Now, the GDP, uh, the, the asset pricing has not been so obvious in Japan. They've gotten to the point where you know, if you look at their stock exchange, I think they still haven't recovered from 1990 levels. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure they have not gotten to break even yet. So think about that, 30 years. And so um, that's how kind of, of a that's why they own 40% of stocks. And so I think that we will eventually get there. That's kind of an inevitable, it's just a math of what happens if you print too much money. They don't really make the public aware of the debt overhang and how it impacts GDP and all this. Everyone just thinks, oh, we're printing money. There's no consequences, but there are consequences. It's like using a credit card today to buy your dinner and saying that, oh, we're just going to you know, put this on the credit card, but there's never going to be a payment due. That's not the way it works. You have to pay interest. And, that, <laughs> and when you pay that interest, you have less money to spend on something else. You know, And that's what's happening to the U.S. government. So um, very long answer, but I think it's important to investors to consider that, to research Japan, to see where we may be heading, to create their own opinion. And I'm not a financial advisor, just my own opinion as an investor. So I'm very worried about that. And I'm going to do what I can to kind of take advantage of this last cycle when it starts, because I'm concerned about the future of investing after that and whether cash flow would be really easy and or predictable to get. Interesting. I wonder how the, you know, we have a, a maybe larger mac macro issues aside in many, say, American cities, we we just have a serious housing shortage. It just is what it is. There's more people now than there are housing units. And then over the next five to 10 years throughout that same cycle, assuming that population growth continues, it's going to the shortage is going to be even greater. And unless that trend changes, those of us who are investing, buying, um, say, multifamilies or, or housing in those markets, we're buying scarce assets. And that, to me, seems like a, a, a good formula. Now, there's obviously risks in there, but I think it's good to at least be starting from a position of, 
acquiring uh, scarce assets that, you know, cash flow with appropriate leverage and uh, things along those lines. But I suppose maybe that's getting a little um, significantly more granular, granular than what you're talking about. And maybe that's still in the appreciation play direction, like you were saying, you might go down the road. Exactly. That is focused on appreciation, which I have confidence in in the long term. I'm unsure about in the short term. And but I actually think that that's going to be the play that more and more people are going to have to focus on. I personally believe that the government's going to have to reduce interest rates over time, not necessarily in the short term, but in the longer term to keep everything afloat, especially because they're paying interest on all the debt that they're issuing. And as rates get lower and lower, our cash flows are going to get less and less interesting. And frankly, the, the other thing that's going to pile onto that, as I was talking about before, is what happens when you don't know if GDP is going to be positive or negative in a year, and that was negative. And now you can't really increase your rents as, as much as or even if, if at all, because it could be a recession. There could be a random recession in a year. As opposed to getting a recession at the end of a cycle, you can have one you know, every two or three years randomly. And so what happens there is that your predictability of increasing prices is much more challenging. Inflation will still exist, and that's a problem, right? So you're fighting against that. And you're probably going to continue to benefit from low interest rates propping up asset prices. And that's why I'm saying I think I'm going to have to eventually shift from focusing on cash flow to appreciation, which just I hate as a concept. <laughs> and I don't hate it, meaning that it's a bad thing. There's a thousand ways to invest. Everyone has to invest how they want and everyone's got their own style. But that goes against my personal style and comfort level. So but I, I'm, I'm anticipating that's going to happen over time. So, well, cash flow, the cash flow approach is that mailbox money way, which you yes. know, definitely uh, seems superior to me if you're if you're looking at the two of them. But it's a huge topic, and there, there's so much in here. I have so many more questions. Appreciate you coming back on the show. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called Ground Floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Jeremy, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show, are you ready? I'm ready. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? So best true investment I've ever made, which I know is kind of like a cop out because it's not what we're talking about today, but the, re the real true answer is a startup. I've invested in a few startups here and there. I've been very lucky on a couple of them. I think I'm currently at about 100X on that startup. Wow. Uh, and it's continuing to grow. 
Um, I have another startup I invested in. It's currently at ADX. So, um, you know, I don't put a lot of money into those startups at very high risk, but those are the best outcomes I've had. Now, they're grueling long-term waits. Um, you know, those have happened over each of them over eight years at this point and continuing. And it's a very long-term wait to see what happens, but high risk, high reward type situation. Well, I'll ask you off air who that was. I have one startup (laughs) and I have one startup investment myself that I made relatively recently. And, uh, I see it as exceedingly speculative, but I, you know, believe in the company. So yeah, we'll see, we'll see where that goes, but this is not just a real estate show. That's mostly what we talk about, but I'm certainly not biased against, uh, talking about other assets. Yep. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? That, that's really easy, actually. So uh, same topic. Um, I have um, invested in a number of startups that have gone to zero. Um, and it's interesting because I'll tell you what the learning was. In the, in the 2000 decade, I invested in a bunch of startups where, you know, I, I thought that, I mean, to me, startups are even more interesting than real estate in that they don't, they don't provide cash flow, but they're just exciting and they're unique. I love hearing about business models. And so... What I did back then is I focused on ideas and I said, this sounds like a great idea. Team looks good enough. I'm going to take a risk at it, right? That's what a VC does. And a lot of those went to zero. And what I learned from that is I didn't know the team that well. They look good on paper, but they didn't execute very well. So I said, this is not the type of investing for me. I kind of took a step back from it. But when I rethought it a few years later, what occurred to me is that just like I do in real estate, I tell people the number one thing I make a bet on as a person, as a passive investor, the number two is the asset. And they're both very important, but the person's just slightly more important in my opinion. I Now I do the exact same thing with startups. It's like, if I have to, I'm not, I don't want to make any startup investments because I don't want to go to zero. But if I have someone I just have to make a bet on that has been so successful, or I know their personality, it's like, I'd be crazy not to bet on them. And I like their business model well enough, then I will go for it. And I have other metrics I put into it. Will it have a high enough return? Is it going to get big enough? Is the risk reward going to be worth it? Like I'm going to swing for a home run if I'm going to go for startup, right? So, but once I switched that uh, strategy 180, almost everything has gone really well on the startup side versus everything went badly before. So that was a really good learning uh, before that has really changed things for me. But the easy answer is I've had a bunch of startups go to zero. (laughs) Good to know. Good to know. Maybe I... uh regret my startup investment I just mentioned. Who knows? We'll see. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? As a passive investor who's giving control to somebody else in everything I do, literally, by far the number one lesson I've learned is focus on who you're making a bet on. And I'm not just saying that because of what I just answered, but it applies to even all the cash flow investing I do. I could tell you so many stories and scenarios of like who I made a bet on made such a difference in the outcome. I mean, it's a very simple example. You know, I could have made a bet on, you know, on the best asset in the best location, but if somebody runs it to the ground, it doesn't manage it properly. The keys are going to go back to the bank and it didn't matter that it was hundred percent occupied in the best location in the U S that just didn't matter at all. It was, you know, and then conversely, you can be in a deal that's challenging, but if you got the right person executing on it, taking care of the right things and covering investors, then you can end up with a pretty good outcome, even though the, you know, you can end up in a better outcome in that scenario than what was a good deal that's being mismanaged, right. To start with. So who you're making a bet on to me makes all the difference. And that is by far the most important message I could convey as a passive investor. I love it. Jeremy, it's been great talking with you once again. Thank you for coming back on the show. 
if folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to, you know, um, find find Phoebe, where can they track down Phoebe or any of the grats, any of that great stuff? Where can they track you down? Where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so anyone's welcome to reach out to me. I'm happy to help any way that I can. You know, whether you're even if you're a new investor, experienced and want to network or want to learn. Uh, investor groups or, or sponsors. I'm always happy to network with anybody. Don't hesitate to reach out to me. The best way is through my email, which is jroll, uh, J-R-O-L-L at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L Investments with an S.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that. So much that helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use the uh, a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll catch you here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.